Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. How's it going, Nizar? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we, we've, we've got so much going on this week. It, it's sort of like there's this financial apocalypse sort of happening in Lebanon, but then also uh, out of nowhere, uh, coronavirus is a really big thing here. Uh, we are very pleased uh, and very lucky to have an expert in the field joining us this week, Dr. Abdurrahman Bizri, who is a professor of infectious diseases at uh, the American University of Beirut Medical Center. Uh, he is also a member of the National Com- uh, Communicable Diseases Committee and also a founding member and former president of the Lebanese Society for Infectious Diseases and Clinical Microbiology. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's very interesting to be here. Yes, and, and I, we, we've got a whole lot to get into during the second part of the show. First off, of course, we're going to get to the news of the week. Uh, and I just want to be clear here for this segment, Dr. Bizri is not here with us. It's just me and Nizar. Okay, so exciting news, Nizar. Lebanon is an oil country now, right? Yes, money, money, money. According to some people. I mean, not not really. <laughs> so on, uh, on Thursday... Uh, Lebanon started drilling out in the Mediterranean Sea, its first exploratory well. It, it was a big deal. This is something that's been promised for you know years and years and years. Uh, and finally, it, it it's coming to fruition. But I, I think fruition is maybe a, a problematic word to use here because we're not going to actually see the results of this. We're not going to see the fruit of this uh, for a really long time. So let me be Debbie Downer for a minute. Uh, the, the exploratory drilling is just that. We don't know if there's actually hydrocarbons down there. And even if something is found, then we, we've got a whole set of other problems because the Mediterranean is actually really, really deep, which means it costs more to extract hydrocarbons that are locked underneath the seafloor, right? And so not only do we need to find enough uh, natural gas to extract it, but we, we need to find it in such large quantities that it makes sense for a business to pay the extra cost to get it out of the ground, right? And at the same time, gas prices uh, have fallen from, I mean, the, uh, from their highs in, in the 2000s. So back in the day, you know, back when we started hearing about uh, Lebanon becoming a potential, you know, oil and gas uh, producing country, the price was a whole lot higher than it is now. And so this makes it, again, more difficult to meet that like commercially viable threshold. So even if this uh, find, if we do find stuff and it is commercially viable, then lots of stuff also needs to happen. This is not something that, you know, we're going to start seeing revenues flow in like this year or next year or anything. No, like it seems as though so many things have to happen, like legally and planning wise and just infrastructure wise, building things up that it puts the actual extraction uh, date like closer to the end of this decade. And beyond those concerns, also there, there are compelling arguments to just leave the oil and gas, anything that we might find out there in the ground. Climate change, of course, is one of the biggies here, uh, but also there's just a local concern over like moral hazards and resource curse. Uh, There there are fears that uh, the country's leaders, the Suama, will will just steal it. There are fears that the, the country's leaders may use it to help plug a hole in state finances that they themselves created. And so there are voices that say, well, maybe we need to rethink this uh, oil and gas extraction thing altogether. Yes. Yay. I completely support that. It's just pure rent, pure economic rent. It will create uh, very few jobs for the Lebanese population or for people in Lebanon in general. Yeah. What's a great deal about it? Imagine like, you know, we found out that we own a very fancy island somewhere and we're renting it out. It's the same thing. The money will come in. They were redistributed into the same dynamics of sectarian clientelism that we have. 
and it will not help us achieve any economic transformation. It's actually just like, you know, like a Gatorade to the, the clientele system, more or less. So, yeah, we don't need it. I mean, I don't mind it so much because, relatively speaking, I don't know how much our impact on climate change will be or whether whether really this is a big concern globally. It's going to be really small. Um, but still, from just a purely political perspective, I'm evil and I support like keeping it in the ground and not getting the money. Yeah, and 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 moving from this sort of like long term plan to sort of the immediate term. Like we we need relief right now because there is an e- economic crisis right now. And, and on that, uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, since we last joined you, a lot of things have happened. First off, let's talk about the Eurobonds, which we've discussed in detail uh, over the past couple of weeks. We're, we're supposed to be $1.2 billion, uh next week on the 9th of March, but there have been a number of co- conflicting reports over whether we will actually pay or not. We don't know. Uh, but we did have some indications. The government did hire a financial uh, services advisory, uh, Lazar, and a, a law firm, Clary Gottlieb, as financial and legal advisors for a potential restructuring. But we, we don't have full clarity on exactly what the government is thinking. We believe that we will get that this week. You expect full clarity on what the government is thinking. Well, at the very least, a decision of whether to default uh, or not. Uh, meanwhile, a, a really, really big fund, Ashmore, has bought more of this year's maturing eurobonds, which sounds counterintuitive. They're taking a big risk here, right? But they, they hold more than 25% of the eurobonds due on March 9th, according to reports. Um, and word is they've also upped their stake in the other two eurobonds that are maturing this year, upping it to more than 25% for all three of the maturing eurobonds uh, in 2020 which means that they can sort of single-handedly block certain deals if there is a restructuring. They've got this blocking position because they have more than 25%, which means Lebanon may be in for a fight if we do restructure. And to give some context, we're talking about a situation where actually the various investors are have different approaches on how to deal with this. So there's a bunch of investors who are pro uh, restructuring now and and they're just saying, okay, let's get to the straight to the point. Let's restructure and like negotiate that. And Ashmore, which is one of the biggest, is saying, no, Lebanon should pay uh, the debt that is uh, due soon, especially the one in March. And actually, there was a report in the Financial Times that uh, this is causing, causing some kind of a conflict because the other investors are seeing Ashmore as very selfish because it's demanding this kind of immediate payment, kind of prioritizing short-term profits over uh, long-term profits of all other investors. So by doing this move now, Ashmore buying more debt and holding more capacity or more leverage and then on the negotiation table or to block negotiations altogether uh, is quite a nasty move that maybe we'll see other companies kind of trashing them soon. I like this whole, you know, fight between money giants. Oh yeah, yeah right, it's right. It's, so it's cool. really interesting, yeah. I, I wish it wasn't on our expense though. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and, and just to piggyback on that, it's, it's, this is a really risky thing for Ashmore to do because it seems as though the market thinks Lebanon is headed towards default. Not this past Friday, but the Friday before, uh, both Moody's and S&P downgraded Lebanon to basically a level or two above default. So the market seems to be sort of pricing this in, expecting that Lebanon will default soon, maybe not on March 9th, but soon on its Eurobond uh, commitments. And, and just a note here as well, it's very important. Moody's uh, said that a restructuring plan uh, uh, under default, right, would likely involve write downs of basically like a third to two thirds 
of face value. So if you're an investor and you put in $100 million, then you may only see $35 million back instead of, uh, you know, the full the full face value that you should get paid. And just to be clear, Ben did it uh, over two takes. The first one, he completely missed the math. I, <laughs> it's early, Nizar. Give me, uh, cut me some slack. <laughs> Uh, also, many are talking about IMF's involvement. The uh, The International Monetary Fund sent a technical delegation to Lebanon February 20th to the 24th. Uh, many are mentioning the idea of financial, and not just technical, but financial IMF assistance. But Hezbollah uh, is against this. Uh, they're against giving the IMF any sort of significant say over how Lebanon restructures its economy. Yeah, I mean, Hezbollah has been the most vocal in the political elite against it, but the main voice against it has been from the streets. And we've seen like protests after protests and people who are involved in the revolution, uh, a lot of them at least um, kind of preemptively, you know, striking against an IMF bailout deal because of the conditions that this deal would have. And when we get closer to the deal, we'll definitely have an episode specifically about that, discussing the conditions, etc. But right now, there's nothing serious on the table that we are sure of. So there's no really uh, value in just going over uh, speculations. Absolutely, absolutely. Meanwhile, the lira is still just hovering right below 2,500 lira to the dollar. Uh, It's been this way for the past couple of weeks or so. Relatively stable, hasn't been moving a whole lot, but all signs are pointing towards a further depreciation, unfortunately. We also had some very different uh, kind of news this week. We had a clash between the supporters of Gibran Basile's FPM, Free Patriotic Movement, and Legion Blood's Progressive uh, Socialist Party in Hamra, of all places. This is because FPM called for a protest against the central bank policies. Right, so here we have like the intertwining of economy and all these financial policies and politics. Yeah, I just think that what happened is that the FPM felt that they haven't called for a protest for a long time. And they were like, that's the only <laughs> thing we can protest against without oh being God. completely hypocritical. And, and they were, they were, we will say, we'll talk about that in a second. Anyway, but there was some fake news and a lot of, like the kind of the Druze community went on, you know, this mobilization mode on WhatsApp and started spreading this uh, fake news that, you know, uh, the FPM people will pass by Religion Blood's house and kind of send him a political message. The Jubilee's house is down the street from Bank Liban, basically. Yeah, and the and the upper entrance is he has this whole security zone around his house. That's what progressive socialists have usually. Anyway, um, <laughs> PSP yeah, macho men get ready to you know defend uh, Jumblat, and there there were some discussions with media that I loved. Like media, where I was asking them why are you here, etc. And one of them said, you know, we're okay with uh, people protesting anything and anywhere, etc. But if they insult religion blood, we would never allow that to happen. And he said, you know, we have God in the sky and religion blood is on the on, on earth. Basically, like religion blood is the representation of the divine. And then his comrade uh, kind of corrects him. He said, no, religion blood in the skies and God on earth. <laughs> I have no idea they, what, <laughs> what kind of a philosophy he's coming from. But anyway, it was a little clash, nothing major. There there was talks about some people pulling out their guns, but nothing really to to talk about. But we're we're talking about two parties that have been mobilizing against each other for a long time. Uh, we talked about this in detail in episode fifty called "Blood and Politics," when um, actually uh, this turned into real blood and and people died and uh, and in an armed clash in Abrashmoon in Mount Lebanon. But apart from that, and the fact that, you know, FPM and PSP basically always find a reason to mobilize their bases against each other, mostly, you know, on sectarian basis. Um, there's a funny thing about this is that, 
you know, FPM called the protest against Riyad Salemi. And back in 2017, when Riyad Salemi's term was renewed, uh, it was based on the decision of Michel Aoun, the founder of FPM, and who basically brought it from outside of the cabinet agenda just to, uh, you know, vote on it. And they renewed the, the term of Riyad Salemi. And back then, people knew about the financial engineering. People knew that this whole monetary policy thing was not sustainable, but it was just part of the game. The FPM used to basically... Um, give a lot of things as part of the game in order to stay in power and this was given to the financial elite and to Hariri as like quite a compromise and also to Birri and other people who have seemed to be quite supportive of Salemi in the last period when his you know image has been trashed by the revolution so the funny thing is you know the FPM are now waking up to this thing called central bank policies and why they're important after uh, basically contributing to to getting us to this place. Uh, and to be fair, though, the FPM is certainly not the only party in Lebanese politics that uh, will flip and go back on uh, one position. Definitely. Yeah. Also, last week, uh, Prime Minister Hassan Dieb had some harsh words uh, that appeared to be directed at uh, his predecessor uh, and the leader of the future movement, Saad Hariri. Uh, during a cabinet meeting on Thursday, uh, Dieb essentially accused him of asking Western and Gulf powers not to help the Dieb government out. According to a, a readout of what was said during the cabinet meeting, uh, Diab said that, you know, not specifying who exactly, but their main concern is for the government to fail and to be unable to deal with any crisis. And uh, here he seems to be talking both about coronavirus and the economic crisis. Yeah, he also said uh, that these groups are inciting foreign powers against the country and are trying to destroy any hope for rescuing the country. Really strong words. It elicited a response from the uh, future movement bloc in parliament. Here we, we have just another example of how the Lebanese elite is not on the same page on how to deal with this stuff. Uh, and also we saw the continuation of the crackdown on journalists and activists over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, surprisingly, Gibran Basile filed a lawsuit against someone um, oh, wow. for saying stuff on social media. This has never happened, um, <laughs> except basically every other week. Anyway, so... He's uh, very well known for being litigious. Fragile politicians are, are still human beings, okay? We should respect that. Anyway, uh, so Basile filed a lawsuit against uh, journalist Dima Sadiq, uh, well-known former LBCI host, and the blogger slash activist uh, Gino Raidi. Because they shared a video on social media that accused member of the FPM of attempting to murder someone on the road to North Lebanon. This is a whole story, and if we get a good, like, investigative dimension, we, could go, we can go into it later. But there are many uh, tales about what really happened and why the person was found on the on the side of the road in a bad condition, etc. But uh, Basile filed a lawsuit accusing them of sectarian incitement, uh, which is one of the things in the Lebanese penal code. Uh, so Sadiq and Raidi were both uh, summoned to the criminal investigations department in the judicial palace. This was the first in this incident of the week. The second one is activist Sharb al Khouri, who has been, who has had a history of being, you know, uh, targeted by uh, the security apparatus for things he writes on social media. Was arrested, then released uh, after criticizing the aide of Jibran Basil, Sharb al Qurdahi, on Twitter. What happened is basically Khouri quoted a tweet by Qurdahi and he added uh, some like a kind of an aggressive caption more like mocking him than really insulting him but I mean it's not it wasn't a big deal to be honest it was something that we see every day on on Twitter but Qurdahi filed a lawsuit against him and Khouri appeared at the cybercrime bureau 
and they ask him to delete the tweet, which they always do because that's what you know serious uh, national security priorities uh, <laughs> require. Yeah. And he right. refused. He said, "No, I'm not going to delete it." So they uh, the the which by the way, most people don't do that. Most most people just. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure to just go ahead and conform. But he said, "No, I'm going to make a point here." Yeah, and he's right. I mean, what kind of a, what kind of a government brings you in and says, you know, delete the tweet? Anyway, and then we had after this happened when he refused, Judge Radaun was not is not at all popular among, especially among people uh, who are part of the part of the revolution or supported. She issued an order for his arrest, and uh, this caused huge outrage. And the cases of Khuri and you know Raidi and Dima Sadiq became kind of merged together uh, in a kind of public solidarity campaign. But I want to say something about Khuri specifically and his case is something that's not really focused on in the coverage, which uh, the journalists, uh, amazing journalists uh, Joel Butros kind of pointed out on Twitter, is that the content of Qardahi's original tweet was about serious economic policy stuff. And Qardahi is a financial expert or whatever, and he's like Basile's advisor. Uh, so what he says about the economy is quite important to, to take a look at. And he was saying that the economic measures that should be taken to overcome the crisis should not uh, take into account the interests of any groups. And he named the banks, the large depositors, the central bank, the public sector, the pensioners, like the retirees, uh, the monopolists, the tax evaders, etc. So this list kind of is weird because it has so many different kind of actors in them. Like it has people who are known for their corruption and their control over the Lebanese economy, like the monopolists who are, you have monopolies over trade, for example, and people like the pensioners, you know, people who rely on their retirement pensions and the private sector, this weird, this weird rhetoric that uh, talks about the private sector as kind of a bad thing. So Sherbel was, Sherbel was just pointing that out and in his tweet about uh, what Qardahi said and he said you know you shouldn't include public sector and retirees uh, along with these notorious people uh, like the banks and the monopolists etc so yes this is something that's very important to point out so I thank Khoury for doing that um, maybe the insults are something else but it doesn't matter what's important is that we say this rhetoric that says everyone should pay a price and we should all share the pain and all of this bullshit is just really just pure neoliberal bullshit there is a class of Lebanese um, elites financial elites and politicians who have benefited from the economic system that led us to this point and we've talked for ages about this and they are responsible for the cost of this crisis we should not spread it in a fair way so that everyone is hurt a little no some people need to be really hurt because they deserve it or because they put a lot of bets on this very risky system if they are large depositors or whatever and other people have been you know smashed by the system uh, over and over again and they shouldn't be smashed by it again in any kind of solution to the economic uh, the economic crisis so we should be very wary of this public sector or pensioners or whatever kind of discourse Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and that's it for uh, for the past couple of weeks news. On to the main topic this week, coronavirus. What's going on? What the Lebanese health system is doing? What the Lebanese authorities are doing? How prepared are we? These are the questions we want to get into. Very quickly, though, I think we need to set the stage of exactly, you know, what is the coronavirus? Uh, coronaviruses are actually like a class of viruses. Uh, in, Correct me if I'm wrong, doctor. Yeah, you see, coronavirus is a group of viruses that have been infected the humans for so many years. However, because they usually used to be give a very mild infection, people did not really care much about the corona until we have the SARS virus in 2002 
when people started worrying that corona can really cause a fatal illness. Then we had the, the Merskovi or the Middle Eastern syndrome uh, that happened in Saudi Arabia where it is associated with camels. And right. we know that corona loves mammals and this is why it's always associated from an animal host to a human host. And usually everybody tries to incriminate initially the bats because the uh, bats usually uh, and corona there is a strong affiliation with them. However, corona uh, can manage to have what we call in medicine reassortment of the genes. They take some genes from the bat, they take from some genes from the animals, they take some genes from the humans, human viruses, animal viruses, bad viruses, they mix together and you end up having a new virus. And probably what happened here is that this current coronavirus, the COVID-19, which interestingly was named COVID because this is the first virus that the medical community insisted on not linking it to any human or to any area or to any population because of discrimination. Because in the past they used to to name viruses after humans or uh, certain countries or a certain ethnic group. So this is the first time. So COVID stands for Corona, VI stands for virus, D stands for disease, and 19 stands for the year that it appeared. So the COVID-19 benefited from this property of viruses that they can mix genes together. And now we, we ended up having a new virus that the humans are not introduced to. So that we don't have a memory in our, in, uh, in our immune system about this virus. So when it infects us, it can infect us. How it compares to the other coronas, it's definitely much more rapid uh, spreading than the uh, SARS and definitely than the Morscovy, but it's by far much less fatal and less serious than the SARS and the Morscovy. Okay, and just to give some numbers to this, we, we don't know exactly what the mortality rate is yet for uh, COVID-19, but we think it's around 2.3%, somewhere in that way, 1% well, to 3%, it's a, it's right? It's a good estimation, but this estimation came from China initially. So we know about the mortality in people who had really what expressed symptoms. So this is what in people who have illness, we know that the mortality is somewhere between 2 to 3%. However, if you take the anatomy of this mortality, you dissect it into groups, then you will know that the elderly and the people who have a lot of comorbid illnesses, cancer, uh, diabetes, renal failure, heart failure, and so on, they will have a higher mortality. Younger people, they may have a low mortality as 0.5% or even, or even less. So it's, it's not supposed to be a fatal virus, but it's definitely a virus that can spread quickly and it can cause a serious illness in certain population of people, subpopulation of people. And and this is now something that Lebanon is faced with. We, we are recording right now on Sunday morning. And just last night, Saturday night, word came out that three more cases were confirmed in Lebanon, bringing yeah, the total yeah, sure. cases up we to seven. We have seven cases confirmed, two Lebanese, three Syrian, and two Iranian. And they all have the same epidemiological source. They all are related to travel uh, to Iran. The Syrian works in what you call Iran uh, religious campaigns. So he infected his own family. The Iranian guy who came, he's an old man with the cancer. He came to uh, to talk about, uh, to see his daughter uh, before probably want to check on her. So he ended up infesting her as well. And we have two ladies who uh, were residing in uh, Iran for religious studies. And now now they are doing very well and uh, probably the first lady will soon will be discharged from hospital we have a lot of people under under what you call isolation and under what you call a, even 
quarantine. What's the difference between isolation and quarantine? The public should know that when we quarantine someone, we quarantine them with no with minimal measures. This they stay in their own room. Uh, we serve them usually in order not to go out. But when we isolate people, we usually under isolate them under specific medical conditions. So, so the quarantine, as I understand it, is more for we we don't know whether these people yes. are infected so or if not. You are, if you are exposed, you we prefer that you are quarantined. Lebanon did not have the capacity to quarantine everybody in a one or two or three large facilities. So mm-hmm. we went to another other option that we should call for home quarantine. The people are, are quarantined at home. This has been practiced in United States of America. It has been practiced in many other countries. Our recommendation initially was to quarantine everybody in, in large and big, uh, what you call, governmental institution or to hire some empty hotels and do that. But the government said we don't have this capability. The WHO endorsed also the other option, which we can say we can have home quarantine. So uh, a message to everybody who's hearing us, please, that home quarantine is really, really, in order to be successful, it has to depend upon the person himself or or herself, because this is where you have to protect yourself, your family, and your neighborhood. So we, we cannot force you in, into home quarantine, but you have to force yourself into home quarantine. So the Lebanese authorities have started to take a few measures. One of them is uh, trying to stop travel uh, to affected areas like Iran, for instance. Another one is that they have actually set aside a portion of one of the governmental hospitals, the uh, Rafiq Hariri. Yeah, the Rafiq Hariri Hospital. Yes. Right, in Bir Hassan, just south of Beirut. And, and what's going on there exactly? Well, what's happening, first of all, about the travel restriction, we, we have very minimal travel restrictions because uh, we're still receiving at least three um, planes from uh, Milano every week. And we know that north of Italy is one of the areas which has been labeled uh, as uh, the virus is replicating there. The Iranian travel now is scaling down and hopefully it will stop uh, completely soon. What's happening at Rafiq Hariri Hospital is that they have emptied a whole floor, so the capacity is somewhere around 100 beds, uh, give or take 20% more. They are isolating uh, people, they are uh, uh, quarantining people there, and we have uh, only the people who are critically who, who are critically ill or ill, uh, they are under what we call isolation. And as we said, the on, the, we have only one person who is uh, uh, quite serious, not because of the severity of the infection, but because of his underlying uh, conditions. So uh, we're doing tests there. And uh, we, as a communicable disease uh, committee, uh, advised the government that every test should be done only in one center for the time being. Although I know that for sure that many centers now in Lebanon uh, have uh, the ability to test for the virus, and many even private laboratories have imported the test. This brings up a really, really important point, I think, and that is talking about equipment. If we rewind the clock a few months, uh, everybody remembers the hospitals and uh, the medical suppliers coming together and saying, we can't get medical supplies in this country because the exchange rate is no longer what it used to be. uh, And we are very, very low. So my question is, isn't this sort of a compounding factor? And how much does the fact that the lira is no longer at 1500 play into the problem? It's probably the worst time to have an outbreak. 
it's always bad to have an outbreak, but now it's one of the worst <laughs> times to have an outbreak. <laughs> yeah. uh, because initially, uh, we were not able to import any new products because of the Lebanese restriction on the money. Because as you know, since you're a political uh, also uh, pro- podcast, uh, unfortunately, we are plagued with uh, what you call a corrupt political clan. And uh, this corrupt plan managed to what you call to deprive the money at uh, the country of, of, uh, of everybody's money. And now we have a problem that we need uh, to import uh, even some material to uh, to use. This material can be, uh, the, I, I tell you that the probably most important shortages will be soon if this uh, outbreak goes on, will be in the protective gear for the medical community because the protective gear in the medical community is originally comes from China. China is not now uh, exporting. Uh, the, the, the second source for, the, the, for that is Europe. Now Europe, they have restrictions on exporting because everybody wants to protect their own community. Right. Uh, so we are left only with the Egyptian source and, uh, and hopefully Egypt does not, is not get, will not get infested with the virus. And in Lebanon, even the people who can make that, they say that we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, import the raw material uh, because simply we cannot have bank credits for that. Should people be going out and trying to buy masks for protection? Well, thank you for this question. I think the most unuseful thing, if not, I don't want to call quote-unquote stupid thing, really, <laughs> yeah. is, is, to, uh, is to wear a mask. The mask is a, what you call, is a protective gear for only one, uh, one, one tiny encounter. So if you're going to see somebody who is sick, wear a mask. Uh, if you are a medical doctor, if you are a nurse, if you are a healthcare worker, please wear a mask. If you are a sick patient having to go out for a very important uh, reason, wear a mask. But don't wear a mask walking in the street of Hamra. Don't wear a mask wa- uh, driving the, uh, your motorcycle. Uh, don't wear a mask while you're going out everywhere because you are depriving us of an important protective gear that we are running short out of unnecessarily. Moreover, masks need to be got rid of and they are going to contaminate our already contaminated environment. Oof. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me ask you another question uh, about the system. Who's supposed to be in charge in a system like this? And who, like according to international best practice, what? who should be on the point person and who is the point person? Do we have one? When you start having an outbreak, it's the Ministry of Health. And the, okay. okay, once the outbreak becomes a national issue, it should be the prime minister. Okay. Because this is where politics come in. And when I talk, I'm talking politics, I'm not talking politics relation to Italy or Iran or China or Korea or whatever. When I'm talking politics about this is the, the prime minister has to sit with his cabinet members. They have an emergency, what you call a group. They should sit there and decide their their financial resources, their human resources, how should they divert them. The, the issue of diverting resources from one ministry to the other, diverting human resources also. I'm asking what, what is the Lebanese army doing? What's the Lebanese internal security forces doing? What's the Lebanese, what you call civil, uh, civil defense doing? These are all, this is where when it comes a national issue, it becomes a political decision. We physicians, we can advise the government what to do. We can advise the Ministry of Health what to do, but the executive decision is their decision. Okay, and, and what is your advice? If you if you had a, a, a meeting with Hassan Diab uh, this morning, I hope what would not, you tell him? I don't usually like to meet with him. Uh, however, <laughs> if I want to, uh, uh, if I uh, I believe that uh, I believe that this is a futile. Uh, unfortunately, it's a few. It's really a futile exercise meeting with the government. 
but but let, let's say he he was gonna agree with whatever you said. What would you tell him to do? I, was, I think this this should become his national priority. Uh, he should divert resources. He should take some certain recommendations seriously. For example, and they should not issue recommendations without really assessing uh, their repercussions. And uh, one one good example is that gov- what uh, closing uh, schools uh, when we have only when we had only four cases and no evidence of local transmission was not a very smart decision. What are they going to do next week when they are going to have 20 or 30 cases? Are they going to close what again? So uh, this is why the government. So you, you were uh, also against the closing, the decision to close schools. And, and, and just so everybody knows, the, the decision was made to close all schools uh, from the Minister of Education until March 8th, uh, next Monday. Yeah. And, and also preschools were also. Can, can asked I ask to close. what happens after March, March 8th? March 9, what are we going to do? I think they're hoping Corona disappears. <laughs> uh, hopefully. I'm, I'm, I pray to God. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so, so AB had, uh, the American University of Beirut, where you work, had a different opinion than the government, and uh, they decided not to close. Uh, like, can you explain how this well, work? Well, the president of uh, AUB consulted his infectious disease uh, uh, department and his public health department, and they all advised him that uh, closing is unnecessarily uh, since there is no n- n- a local transmission in the country. Uh, once we have a major issue about local transmission, then we should not only close school, we should only we should prevent major gatherings in general. Mm-hmm. As long as we don't have evidence for a strong local transmission, the last few cases that came, uh, the one who infested his own family, uh, uh, is maybe the start of a local transmission, but we are so far more or less not very worried because th- we still have the same epidemiological source. So when we start having cases unrelated to the initial cases introduced to the country, then we worry about local transmission. And then this is where we can advise against uh, gatherings, mass gatherings, activities, including maybe schools and universities. There's been a lot of uh, questions surrounding, though, how much exactly we know. And and this isn't specific to Lebanon. This is, you know, in China. We, we, are, we know university, you mean, globally. Like, like are, are, is the number of cases that's being reported really the full extent of the problem? So my question is, for Lebanon, how much can we trust, like, oh, there's only seven cases? Is is the reporting being done? Is the testing being done? Let me tell you uh, um, from somebody who is really uh, closely uh, working with the Ministry of Public Health. The information the Ministry of Public Health is issuing everyday basis is what we really have. Whether our surveillance system is that sensitive or not, I'm, uh, I doubt that any surveillance system will be as sensitive in all the world, not only in Lebanon, especially with a new outbreak, especially that you need to uh, mobilize resources. You, you're still watching the dynamics uh, every day. Uh, you, uh, a new source of uh, potential importation to the country appears. You see, we're prepared to receive it from China initially. Then it came from Iran. We were right. worried about Iran. It came. Mm-hmm. We started now worrying about Italy. I don't know when. What, what are we going to worry about next? Uh, so what I can really reassure you, and this is I'm responsible for my words, that the information issued publicly every day by the Ministry of Health is what we really have. That's very important to know. And uh, you talked a bit about this, but. What is your assessment in general to the public health system in Lebanon's ability to deal with such an outbreak? Well, you see, uh, in my capacity as the chair of the national uh, NCC, the uh, national committee that usually uh, looks overlooks that Lebanon is polio-free and uh, and other viruses, 
we usually ask the WHO uh, to uh, with the Ministry of Health to simulate an importation of a viral illness uh, to Lebanon. The last simulation was done two or three years ago, and uh, it really rated relatively high. So, uh, so we have a system in place. We have a system in place, but you see, uh, this system uh, is uh, very w- people that working in the system are are good experts. Uh, they are very devoted. The public servants of the Ministry of Health, the employees there are very devoted. The only issue is that uh, we, we can lack resources, we can lack money. And now we are experiencing a major crisis financially and economically. And it's really a bad time to strain our system. But the system is there and we have monitored it. And mind you, we were already combating another major outbreak of a respiratory illness, which is more serious than Corona that is really flaring up all over the world which is measles and uh, Lebanon was already involved in two two major vaccination campaigns and immunization campaigns against measles and now we had this problem as well so our the system is trained it is it has limited capacity but it has really uh, very good and well-trained experts so if I if I understand this right this is a, a huge challenge we do need to yeah, the, sure. the government needs to especially mobilize, mobilize. At this time, especially at these times uh, where the financial issues are really quite right, biting right. and uh, really I don't know how much we can sustain it really but so, but at the same time it's not one of the it's not like the world is ending it's not like no, 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 it's like not no an, need to panic it's not a no viral apocalyptic yes. area it's not right. a viral so apocalyptic keep, event yeah, keep, keep everything in, like uh, in proportion right and I believe that the Lebanese will uh, and the Lebanese will suffer from po- poverty and corruption more than they uh, will <laughs> suffer from the corona <laughs> COVID-19 I, I, I think that that's sort of the perfect note to end on right there Definitely. tying everything together <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Bizzari thank you so much for coming yeah, on the sure. program Uh, thank, thank you for you. having me, and I'm always glad to uh, to contribute to your uh, interesting program. Thank you so much, and we will be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Abdurrahman Bizzari, and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.